containment breach. Specimen 426 beyond containment area. Closing bulkheads S6 to S9. Bulkhead S6 beyond load specification. Bulkhead S6 offline. Bulkhead S7 beyond load specification. Bulkhead S7 offline. Closing blast doors to podcast studio. Bulkhead S8 beyond load specification. Bulkhead S8 offline. Blast door closure at 50%. Bulkhead S9 beyond load specification. Bulkhead S9 offline. Blast door sealed. You shouldn't have messed with space boys. Stick to deep sea, better the monsters you know. Corrosion detected on blast doors. Calculating time until breach. Time until specimen 426 enters podcast studio. Long enough to record part 2 of the space episode. Make it count boys. Roll theme tune. Oh, uh, right. While we gather ourselves, let's hear from Don. Hello, this is oceanographer Don Walsh. And for this conversation, I'd like to talk about the relationship between NASA, the Antarctic, and space exploration. We live in a universe of water. It is everywhere on Earth, throughout our solar system, and hasn't been detected in the far reaches of space. While there are critical concerns for freshwater availability on planet Earth, Water in all its forms, liquid, ice, and vapor, is ubiquitous in our cosmos. And where there's water, there can be life. There are nine oceans in our solar system. However, Earth is the only planet with liquid water on its surface. The other oceans are found under thick covers of surface ice. If both liquid and frozen water are counted, then Earth ranks fifth out of the nine in volume of its oceans. Most of the solar system's oceans are on satellites, that is, moons of the planets, although some research suggests that the massive planets, Jupiter and Saturn, may have the largest oceans. Our world ocean on planet Earth contains 321 million cubic miles of salt water, a huge volume considering that all 7 billion people on Earth could fit into just one cubic mile. Remarkably, fresh water is a tiny 3.5% of all our planet's water. Of that amount, only 1% is available to humankind. The rest is locked up in landbound ice, primarily in the Antarctic and Greenland. And in fact, the Antarctic contains 70% of all fresh water on our planet. In our solar system, the largest ocean is on Ganymede, a moon of Jupiter. It's the ninth largest object in our solar system, and its ocean was confirmed in 2001. It has an estimated water volume eight times greater than our world ocean. Most impressive are the calculated ice thickness of 62 miles and a depth of 93 miles. The most studied moon is Europa, a good exemplar of an other ocean. The fourth largest of Jupiter's 79 moons was first described by Galileo in 1610. In the mid-1990s, Europa was one of the earliest places NASA studied using flybys of spacecraft looking for water and life in our solar system. While smaller than our moon, it ranks fourth in water volume of the nine solar system oceans. Europa's icy surface is about 10 miles thick, which covers an ocean 60 miles deep. It's estimated to have twice the water volume found on Earth. 
Direct measurements of these extraterrestrial oceans are not possible without the use of landers such as the Curiosity family that have visited Mars. But remote data from spacecraft flybys, land-based telescopes, and several other analytical means have helped in gathering data. Using this multi-path approach, it's been possible to infer a great deal about the presence of water on the body studied. NASA has been a serious investor in the development and deployment of through-ice probes for the lander. An example is in the Antarctic, the one place on Earth where there's thick ice cover over an isolated ocean. At the Russian Vostok station in East Antarctic, the ice thickness is up to nearly two miles thick. Under the ice is a 3,300-foot deep Lake Vostok, the 19th largest lake in the world. It's about the size of Lake Ontario between Canada and the United States. In 2014, a prototype probe penetrated the ice into the lake, and there it found evidence of life, life which may have been sequestered there for nearly 15 million years. However, Lake Vostok is only one of about 350 lakes beneath the Antarctic ice cover. So there is much research to be done by NASA and other space agencies as we try to learn more about our solar system. More important than finding and assessing quantities of water is the search for life forms in the solar system. For life to occur, the essentials are water and organic compounds together with an environment that helps to incubate origins of life. NASA's astrobiology program begun in the 1990s is supporting extensive work to detect signs of life. Under this program in 2018, they launched the Oceans Across Space and Time project to find and assess water in our solar system. In summary, the best estimate is that the volume of liquid water in our solar system is 25 to 50 times greater than the water on planet Earth. But it's all a work in progress on this frontier of exploration. If NASA's plans to send multiple landers to planetary moons in the next decade are successful, then perhaps a new type of scientist may evolve planetary oceanographer. Well, that's all for now, and thank you for listening. When you do develop a cool new tool, the opportunity and the amount of scientists who are desperate for data from this thing. So we see this quite a lot. Actually, you, you'll have really good input from this for the sub. There's only so many opportunities to get that thing down there. There is a wealth of scientific data you could acquire. How do you organize who gets what what the priorities are. Is it a battle of personalities? The host nation gets what they want first. Yeah, and everything we do, they take, and then we have to apply to get it back again. And if they give it to us, then we have data. Right, so as, as part of the collaboration, as part of the licensing? Yeah, it's just how it works now. So yeah, so we can go out and do loads and loads of work, but it ultimately has to be gifted to the host nation. So that, that makes the decision there. You don't get a permit unless you give it all to them. And then afterwards, you kind of have to sign up MOUs or whatever it is, and then apply to access your own data. Some countries it works really well. Really cool stuff with Chile and I had a call yesterday about loads of cool stuff we're going to do in Japan next year. The Philippines was really good as well. Get that rolling pretty soon. But there are other countries which are quite difficult. And other countries that will just take it all and lock it away and, never, and then you never see it again and then you wonder why you bothered going in the first place. And that's not really a collaboration. That's just political point scoring. Yeah, a lot of it's just tied up in bureaucracy because no one really knows what to do. Everybody wants everyone to work together, but no one really knows how to. <laughs> so as a knee-jerk, it's like, right, we'll take everything. And you're like, okay... 
why did I come here? <laughs> exactly. So yeah, so then we have a big, a big long negotiations of how we're going to work together and stuff like that. And part of it is our own fault because we tend to sort of rock up in countries at pretty short notice. But a lot of my frustration with science generally is how long everything takes. To... So I quite like that idea. Just rock up and kind of go, hey, how's it going? Like we want to do this. If you want, if you want in, jump on the ship and let's go and do something cool. Yeah. And not three and a half years from now, we might get a ship. Are you free on yeah. September the eighth? <laughs> You know, nobody really knows. And it's this long, horrible, drawn-out process to get to something you were interested in three and a half years ago. Yeah, which was cutting edge three and a half years ago. Yeah, so there's, I don't know, there's probably some really efficient middle ground that I'm missing. But yeah, it's, it's, it's all very interesting. You meet lots of interesting people and you realise that lots of countries work in very different ways and every every country you deal with is slightly different and you learn a little bit from each one. Some are extraordinarily difficult and some just don't care. We had one particular country that we implied to, to work in their EZ. And uh, we tried to get them on board. We tried to give them data. We tried to give them free stuff. And they were just like, no, 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 just off you, off you go. Have a good time, lads. You know? It's like, do you want our, some sort of report as to what we did? Nah, that's cool. Don't worry. Just, <laughs> just have fun. Was a, Yeah, that was, that was really cool, actually. That was a good one. That. When you have the bodies on board, when you're planning a dive, the charts are out. Cassie has made some incredible maps and we're picking the nav locations. How is that sort of resolved? How do you plan the dive? How do you plan what's Depends how many dives there are. So in our little outfit, the chances are the boss will want to dive deepest point, so that's an easy one. That's just, there it is. If you get, like on the last one, if let's say we had 10 dives and 50 lander deployments, then it's different to if you went there and you had one science dive. And we've had been in a situation many times where you have one opportunity, what do you do with it? So given how the deeper you go, the less presence people have had at these places, I've always prioritised the deepest areas. Not because of the hero story and the bragging rights of going, oh, we were deeper than everybody else. It's because that's the bit where we have least amount of information from. Yeah, and it, it's the area where you are uniquely yeah. capable of doing that. So someone else can come back with a 6,000 rated ROV and get the rest of it, yep. but you're getting the bit that no one else currently can get. So when we've got lots of dives, we tend to do things like go along the bottom of a, like on the fracture zone, for example, you go along the bottom of the fracture zone, have a look at that, and then go up the north wall, south wall, pick a couple of seamounts and just tick them off. If it's a lander survey, what I've always done in the past is say for example we have three is put one at the top middle and bottom the next day you put one in between those and then the next day you put one in between those and the next day you put, and then you, so you get finer and finer resolution yeah, you don't start yeah. at a shallow end and work your way down because if something happens or the weather comes in or it breaks and you've got loads of data halfway down a trend you've got that no helpful. context so yeah you start off with a low resolution bathymetric transit and then it gets higher and higher resolution as you go and we've tweaked that based on what we're finding as well, haven't we? Because if, if you yeah. if you find the same community, you're just like, okay, we can assume between these two points, it's all this community. Yeah. So let's look for the transition. Let's I find mean, it's worked well. I mean, the Kermadec trench, I think over the between 2007 and probably 2013, we ended up doing a, over 100 lander deployments there. And we've got a resolution of at least one lander sample every 200 meters from 1,000 to 10,000 meters. We got really familiar with that trench. That was home for a while. back for a while, yeah. The other thing we do if there's only one subdive is, is look at the maps and look for an interesting feature. The landers, you always look for the, the least interesting feature because you, you don't <laughs> want it to land on something mad, so you look for the flat bits and the relatively benign bits, but with the sub, you use the opposite. You look for the vertical walls because if you've got the opportunity to look at something where you can't yeah. sample in any other way. Play for the vehicle strengths. Yeah, uh, so it's kind of easy, really. No, but how do you do it if you're a spaceman and you want to land on the moon? How do you, how do you pick the landing site when you have an entire moon to play with? I suppose the one that's less likely to kill you. So um, I guess it's like the first time you go to the Pacific Ocean, where would you put a lander? Do you think it's actually just like closing your eyes and throwing a dart? Like getting a soggy tea bag and throwing it at Big Al's bullseye wall? 
well, maybe you start with that and then you see if that's viable. Maybe that's an easier way of doing it is just pick a site at random and then see if it actually ticks all the criteria. And if it does, then fair enough. Well, it's not far off what we do, I suppose. Put the map out on the big main table and flick our fingernail at it and whenever the fingernail lands is where we dive. But for the record, we've never done that. Isn't that technically a randomised sampling? Yes. Yeah, that's, uh, that is something we literally do in science. <laughs> and I can remember Dan Jones wrote a, quite a nice little algorithm for randomly assigning... Well, how to throw a fingernail at a map. Essentially, essentially, yeah. but like truly randomly with no personal bias. So I, I always think back to when you've got your mitts on an ROV. So we, we did a cruise to the Mid-Atlantic Ridge using the ISIS ROV. And this was an incredible opportunity for a lot of people to do things firsthand. They'd all sampled remotely and, and sort of done trolls and things. So it's great to actually have eyes and hands in the deep sea in order to do your work. But there was maybe 30 scientists on board then. And there's only one ROV. And even when it's doing sort of 24 hour operations, it can only do so much at any one time. And you can't be totally democratic. You can't just say, you know, everyone gets two hours because a little bit of data sometimes is, is less use than, than sort of none at all. So if you want to do something quantitative, you want to do say transect, you need enough data, you need to fly enough lines to have a good understanding of that area and to sort of test your hypothesis. But the really difficult thing then is, is of course, the poor pilots there with 10 scientists sort of watching what's going on, because it's incredibly exciting, and you are following this transect and you catch sight of something just, just to the sort of corner of the field of view. And there'll be some expert who is totally up on those animals. And if that is something important, that is something new. And do you deviate from the transect? Do you go and have a look? And, and where do you sort of draw that line? Because then you're not getting anything done. You're, you're sort of kids in a, in a sweet shop and you're just getting distracted and charging around. And it's really difficult to actually stay on mission when we're all so excited by this stuff, but excited about different stuff in different ways. And you've got this one singular asset. So politically, it can be really difficult. And I think sometimes in, in our situation, like it's a little bit of who's got the stronger personality, which isn't maybe how it should be. But I've seen it happen in lesser vehicles. I remember once <laughs> on a German ship, there's a bunch of geologists and then we're using the multi-core. Oh, fight over cores. And it takes eight cores if it works fine. And then it got to a point where tensions were getting a bit much. So we had to write a plan saying, if we get eight, this is who gets each one. But if one slips out and we get seven, this is how they're getting. And it's almost like a contract saying, if it comes back and yeah. there's only one core in it. And you agree to it, it before it happens. Yeah, you we're not splitting we it eight ways. <laughs> yeah. It was really funny. It was almost like a little microcosm for European politics. I'd, I'd forgotten about that. Yeah, that's that's actually even more heated, isn't it? Because yeah. you'll get different quality as well. Like some of the cores. Back to your guy says back to you is the most important thing in the sea, yeah. and you can all shove your cores and all the rest of it. And then someone says, well, I don't know, because four arms are more important than bacteria. And someone says, well, biochemistry is more important than all of it put together. And someone says, particle size is more important. And then you just sit back, open, <laughs> a, can, open a can of lager, <laughs> and just soak it in, watching these geologists fight over each other. It's, oh, it's fascinating. None of us would have our certain specialities if we didn't think it was the most important thing in the world. And that, that's all almost a, a problem with science a lot of the time, especially when it comes to like communicating it. Like I'm really trying not to be too fish heavy on this podcast, but I just think fish are the most interesting thing. I think it should come down to just me standing with the core over the side of the ship, just going, really, really, do you want me to drop this? What's the Bible story about cutting the baby in half? Two mothers each saying that the baby is theirs. I don't know, Tom, that's pretty dark. It is, it is. It's, it's my religious upbringing shining through, but my, my reference is a biblical story. Well, that's okay, if it's a biblical story, that's nice. Even if it does involve cutting a baby. Out of interest, was it? Horizontally or vertical, cut in half? I feel it would be fairer to be... Vertical. Vertical, yeah, because then everyone gets one of everything. Everyone gets an eye. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Having reared one, I know which end of the baby I prefer. Yeah.
Oh, I'm assuming that's Old Testament. Oh, very Old Testament. Very old, much yeah. Old Testament. If you cut yeah. the baby in half, you're very Old Testament. Okay, so <laughs> from now on, you, if you're going out to do coring, you should have two books with you. You should have Heather's little Fifty Shades of Brown book yeah. and the Old Testament. And the Old Testament. And if you have those two decisions. side by side, you'll all get on just fine. Yeah. There we go. I hope the geologists and biochemists and biologists of this world are listening to this because they yeah. might learn something. What did they cut the baby in half with? It was a sword. A sword, okay. Mm. That's, yeah. An even bigger opportunity for a bun fight must be with the, the current space rovers. I mean, there's a few vehicles on Mars right now, actually. It's getting rather crowded. It's the but... only planet in the solar system entirely occupied by robots. Oh, I like that. But think about how many different scientific groups want data from that. How diplomatic they have to be in planning. Yeah, that must be a fascinating early conversations. It'll be the same thing. It just you take the mega core and just times that by a thousand. Yeah, and and <laughs> there's there's risks to the vehicle as well. You know, somebody might have a really cool suggestion, but it might put the vehicle at risk. I reckon a lot of that stuff is resolved using rock paper scissors. You think? Yeah. I have a feeling that it's maybe a little bit more complicated than that. I doubt it. I'm going to prove it to you. Go on then. Hey. I'm, I'm going to talk to a NASA. Oh, okay. <laughs> Get on the phone then. I made a NASA friend on Twitter and I'm going to ask him. Call NASA then. Must be a big phone number. I don't know why. Why would it be a big phone number? Because <laughs> space is far away. <laughs> but the NASA are not in space. It's not like Thunderbirds. It's not like poor Alan up there all on his own while his brothers have loads of adventures without him. To talk about managing a high-value asset and ensuring that everyone gets what they want without a fight breaking out, I'm chatting with Evan Hilgerman, mechanical engineer and rover planning at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Uh, thanks for coming on, Evan. Yeah, thanks for having me here, Tom. I'm really excited to talk to you today. It's great, it's great to have you on. We've had a little back and forth on Twitter, and I was looking forward to an opportunity to drag you on. You came across my radar, and I was like, that looks like an interesting person. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I'm gonna... I, I appreciate that. We have parallels between space exploration and deep sea exploration. And as we're going into these podcasts and digging into that further, it feels like there's more and more in common in how we operate and the, the sort of issues that we have. And one of them is we've got this singular submarine. It's the only one in existence currently. But the same when we've got an ROV, we've got one incredibly capable, incredibly valuable asset. And we have a whole team of scientists with varying personalities who all want very different things from it. And there's, there's only so much hours in the day. So one of your roles is planning the paths of the Mars Curiosity rover, isn't it? Uh, yeah, so as part of my role as a rover planner for the, the Curiosity mission, uh, we're basically responsible for all the mobility and robot arm work uh, that the rover does uh, you know, day to day on Mars. Uh, so we're generally uh, interacting with various people on the science team to basically uh, maximize the science output of the rover and minimize any, any risk to the hardware. And you guys have an even bigger hurdle than, than we face in that there's a massive time lag for you, isn't there? Yeah, indeed. Uh, round trip time to Mars, uh, traveling at the speed of light. So the speed our communications travel at is anywhere from 4 to 22 minutes, if I remember right. It's not something where we can joystick the rover around or control it uh, with any semblance of real-time operations. Generally, the way we do things is that we put together a day or two of instructions for the rover here on Earth, and then we send that out to Mars. It, it'll execute uh, what we tell it to do, um, and then we'll hear back a day or two later uh, how things went. And you kind of repeat that over and over again, yeah, to operate the Mars rover. So, for example, uh, yesterday I was on shift, you know, I 
drove the rover, if you will. I put together a set of instructions uh, that it's going to execute. And then that data from that drive will come back sometime this evening. And I will be anxiously awaiting it. <laughs> That's the first thing that springs to my mind is like, after a few years of doing this, do you ease into it? Or is it a, an incredibly high stress job? Because I, I'm a worrier and I have autonomous gear that I throw over the side. And then that <laughs> night I'm like, was that bit tangled? Did that yeah, did that yeah. seem right? Did that look okay? Yeah, we we have little things like that. It depends on the plan, what we're doing, and how complicated it is. Uh, so some days we're doing things fairly straightforward, you know, from a driving perspective. Maybe there's there's not much in the way. It's an easy drive. Some days we're doing really complex and challenging things. And there's definitely the days where you know, I'm waiting around for uh, our downline, the data coming back from Mars to get to Earth, and really curious to see what it might look like. <laughs> so yeah, I think I think it's a similar mentality there regarding anxiety around uh, see, seeing how your hardware performed. So you've got no tips. There's nothing to help me sleep at no, night. Not, no, <laughs> <laughs> I've gone great Patience. so far. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's always the little things too. It's like when we're putting together these plans, there's a lot of thought that goes into it and multiple people are looking at it. But then there's always like, wait, did I close that camera lens at the end? You know, did I, did we do that? I'm not sure. So uh, there are occasional stress dreams or moments where you're going to bed and it's like, oh, I really hope we didn't forget to do uh, X operation. <laughs> because the, the instructions are sort of laid out, can you anxiously at 2am sort of open up the command line again and just like, yeah, you can. What, what did I send? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've so far uh, been able to avoid doing that. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay, um, so you're, you're far better yeah. than me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I definitely know of other people who will log on as they're going to bed at night just to double check that the commands yeah. we sent were, were correct. And, and that's very much what it looks like. Uh, the commands that we're sending to the rover, they aren't in any traditional sort of computer language. It's basically special sequencing language that the rover is able to speak. So we're basically sending it individual commands. There's some number of commands that it knows how to do and knows what those mean. Very cool. And you've got different levels of, obviously, there's quite a lot of intelligence in the rover itself. And there's almost manual control right the way up to some quite advanced decision making on the rover's end, isn't there? When we're driving the rover, we have a few different modes that we can drive in. The simplest is what we call blind driving, which is basically we're just telling the rover to like close your eyes and go 10 meters forward or turn here and then go in that direction. I mean, that's great because it's simple, but it's not very accurate. Uh, one issue we have is what we call rover slip. Say if you're going through sandy soil or a little bit uphill, the wheels might spin a little bit um, and the rover might think it went, you know, 10 meters, but it actually only went eight or something like that. Uh, the advantage is that blind mode is relatively quick. The rover doesn't have to like stop and take pictures or anything like that. So it's our fastest, but also the least accurate mode of driving we have. The one that we use most frequently is called visual odometry, which is when the rover will go along and we might tell it to go, you know, 10 meters forward and it'll stop every meter and basically take a picture of the terrain. By building up that series of images, it can basically tell exactly how far it's moved in between those drive steps. So it's a bit slower. We have to stop and take pictures along the way, but it's much more accurate. So if the scientists decide, hey, there's a really cool rock over there, uh, and we want to go poke it with the instruments on the, on the end of the <laughs> robot arm, uh, we can approach that pretty accurately. I think that's what Casey adopted for the, the Orpheus program as well. And then there's a third and final sort yeah. of most advanced, but but most time and processing heavy Exactly, exactly. Flavor. That's the, the auto navigation. We typically only like to drive as far as we can see on Mars. 
Uh, so the rovers all have masks that are sitting up on top of the rover. That's the head-looking thing. And there's a bunch of cameras on there that can basically make a 3D map of the environment. So stereo pairs of cameras. Uh, they'll build up uh, a stereo map. And normally, the, the range we get can be anywhere from like 30 to 100 meters. And we're okay driving on top of that. But we don't just want to like send the rover off the edge, what we call our mesh. So we, we, we don't just command that open loop. If we need to go further like that, we'll use AutoNav, which basically means that we can't see the train. But if the rover's driving along, it can. So it'll stop and take a series of, of pictures basically in front of it, build up what we call a hazard map. So it's able to look for things like tall rocks and other hazards, and it'll basically start plotting its own course uh, to avoid those hazards. Uh, we use that uh, capability somewhat uh, infrequently on Curiosity. Yeah, the Autonav is very power and time intensive because we have to take so many pictures and do a lot of computation. It takes a long time for those drives to execute. And that also means it takes a lot more power to get a given distance. Uh, I was just going to add on, this is all on Curiosity. Uh, we have to, we basically have to stop to take pictures and think. Uh, one of the big advancements on the Perseverance rover, which of course just landed this uh, spring, is that it's able to do something called thinking while driving. Uh, so instead of having to stop and take pictures and think about it for a couple minutes every meter, it's basically just going to be able to keep rolling, take pictures, do all the calculations while the rover's in motion. So they'll actually be able to drive a lot faster, and you'll probably see those capabilities being used more on Perseverance than, than what we have on Curiosity. I, I was wondering as I was reading about this stuff, actually, that you know, you've know you got a whole sort of ecosystem, really, and you've got an energy budget. And any processing, any image processing, any creating a mosaic and things like that, it's all processing processor cycles, and that's going to have an energy requirement. Yeah, we have a, a very uh, limited and a very fixed amount of power on Curiosity as well as Perseverance. Uh, our power source is actually, there's a big chunk of plutonium in the back of the rovers uh, that's basically putting off heat, and we're able to convert that heat energy into electrical power. That's you know great because it's a very predictable amount of power, but also relatively limited. The power source for Curiosity, when it landed, it put off something like 100 watts of power. So it's basically running off, you know, a bright light bulb worth of power. Uh, now, we're, of course, we're using that to charge a battery. And then most of the operations of the rover are, uh, you know, run off the battery. But that's kind of the order of magnitude of, of our power source. And yeah, it's, it's limited. So a lot of uh, our activities uh, might be limited by one of the other engineers is one of the systems engineers on the operations team saying like, hey, we only have enough power to drive 30 meters today and also get done the, the other things that we want to do. So that's as far as we're going to go because we just don't have have power to do to do more than that. It's interesting that there's this like trickle essentially, and it's filling a tank, and you've got to sort of budget exactly. that yeah. tank. And you can, <laughs> is there any solar top up, or is it all all the? No, it's all battery? it's all nuclear. Oh um, wow! Uh, Perseverance and, and Curiosity, Mars Exploration Rover, Spirit and Opportunity were both solar powered. Uh, that's actually a really interesting story because originally uh, those missions. Uh, we're only planned to last 90 days on Mars because of the solar panels. Uh, everybody thought they would get covered in dust, and after about 90 days, they just wouldn't have enough power to drive anymore. But what they found is that the panels were getting periodically cleared off by the wind on Mars. They actually think the rovers were occasionally getting hit by a little dust devil or something, which would clean off the solar panels uh, and basically keep the rovers going longer. So Spirit and Opportunity, they, they were originally 90-day missions. Uh, because of this surprise benefit, Spirit ended up lasting six years, and I think uh, opportunity Jeez. lasted something like 13 years on Mars. Which, you know, it's orders of magnitude beyond uh, what the initial design life was. Suddenly the names take on new meaning, especially yeah, opportunity. Yeah. It's like, Indeed. hey, this thing's still working. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> but yeah, it's interesting hearing the stories from 
the people running the rovers at the time because they were expecting a 98-day mission. And then it just kind of kept going and going and going. <laughs> and it wasn't a hard 90 days. It was like an, an estimated 90 days. People were probably bracing for less. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that was basically the mission was sold to NASA is a 90-day mission on the surface of Mars. I think they got their money's worth out of, the, out of that one. Value. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're hoping that perseverance and curiosity will last at least as long as well. They were basically built nominally for for a one Martian year mission. Uh, that, that's the initial, what's called the primary mission. And the big reason for that is that ensures that they're designed to survive all of the seasons on Mars. So one year on Mars is about two years on Earth. But if you can survive, you know, one season on Mars, why not two or three? Yeah. Uh, although the, the primary mission for these rovers is a couple of Earth years, the hope and certainly the intent is that they would last uh, much longer on the surface. You know, a lot of the Big hazards for the rovers are things like thermal cycles. So on Mars, it gets really cold at night, right? I forget what the overnight temperatures is. Something like, you know, minus 80 and minus 100 degrees Celsius. Daytime highs might get up to around freezing. So you have this huge temperature variation that the rovers are going through every day. From the, the engineering side, one of the most yeah, stressing delicate components just, love yeah, that. Yeah, the thermal <laughs> cycles, yeah. <laughs> yeah, all, that, all those wires and all the harnessing and the electrical connections, you know, there. Um, Everything becoming brittle and yeah, exactly, expanding exactly. and contracting. And, uh -huh. Oh, jeez. So it's, it's quite a challenge from an engineering perspective to make sure everything will survive. I've got a sense of like a, a cycle to this routine. So even though you've got a... a 22 minute delay mm -hmm. do you have sort of times where there's no communication due to where the planets are positioned it, it feels like you you've got a daily cycle here almost so ideally the way that the, the rover operation would work is that basically while it's daytime on earth it would be nighttime on mars so while the rover's sleeping it's generally not doing anything at night we're basically putting together instructions and then at about 9 a.m on mars we send all the commands to the rover for the next day it goes to work during the martian day while we're asleep on earth and then in its evening, it sends back information in, in the morning on Earth, and you're basically able to redo that over and over again. I know that's challenging because a Mars day is not quite the same length of time as an Earth day. There's about a I was going to ask, are you living yeah. on Martian time? <laughs> I, I am not. <laughs> um, there's about a 40-minute difference between a Mars day and an Earth day. Uh, Mars day is a little bit longer. Uh, so the first 90 days of a mission, the operations team will actually live on Mars time. Uh, so the Perseverance operations team was living on... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> They were living on Mars time from, you know, February when it landed until sometime in May. That's, you know, very good for the rover operations because they're able to plan every day, you know, and, and react to things relatively quickly. It's generally not as good for the people operating the rovers, but they limit the duration <laughs> of time uh, that that's done for. Later in the mission, uh, we'll transition to a... A schedule where it's, it's more similar to, you know, a normal Earth workday. Um, and what that means is sometimes uh, we basically have to plan two Martian days at a time instead of just one. Or on, you know, Curiosity's been going around long enough, we'll plan an entire weekend's worth of activities for the rover, which might be three or four days of activities. And then the only time where we just, like, can't communicate with the rover is something called conjunction, which is actually coming up this fall for Mars. But uh, it's basically a period in its orbit when Mars is on the opposite side of the sun from Earth. And we can't <laughs> we can't send radio signals through the sun. So there's basically a two and a half week blackout period where we are yeah, unable to noisy. talk to the rovers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Does that feel like almost a summer break and it'll come out the other side with fully charged batteries and, uh, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> you've got loads of energy uh, budget. Yeah, it's rested up. <laughs> a full battery, if nothing else, 
because the, the activities that it's going to be doing, well, we can't pay attention, aren't going to be as energy intensive. So it's going to be doing a lot of like environmental measurements. We do dust devil surveys. The cameras will uh, swivel around and basically look for dust devils in the environment. So that things like that are what it's doing when we can't talk to it for a while. So yeah, nice long-term fixed point environmental study. That's cool. Exactly, yeah. I'm feeling parallels here. You've got your sort of time budget, you've got your energy budget, you've got all the scientists of the world basically <laughs> very, very interested uh, in this. And it, it feels like an ROV control room. We've got much more immediate control, but it is it is a limited opportunity, certainly once you get really deep. There's very few vehicles that can do that. I suppose having like almost real-time communication might make this worse. You you can have decided we are doing transects. We are going to fly this course and we're going to get quantitative data of, you know, how many brittle stars there are, how many sponges there are. You catch sight of something in the camera that no one has seen before or they've never seen it doing that thing before and there's there's some world expert for that particular thing in the room then you've got the very difficult diplomatic situation of (laughs) if every time we saw something cool we deviated from the transect the transect is useless i've heard that referred to as the world's largest ball of yarn uh, conundrum (laughs) really just once someone made that joke but yeah we run into that on mars where it's like you're going along and like oh if we went 30 meters off course over here, there's a really cool rock. And, and sometimes it feels like driving through you know, the Midwest and Kansas, like, oh, we have to stop and see the world's largest ball of yarn. We can't miss that. <laughs> so yeah, you definitely run into that where it's like, we only have one opportunity. You know, we, we aren't coming back this way. Picking the science targets and making sure that we're you know, optimizing our science return while also making progress. For us, that means traversing effectively up a mountain and trying to get to the longer term science goals. It's always a, a bad <laughs> How do you diplomatically sort that out? Is there a, is there a decision making process where you you look at risk reward? Do you have almost a procedure? I, I'm I'm looking at ways of stopping arguments in my future. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> yeah. So some of that is generally determined ahead of time regarding like what instruments are going to get time when, because uh, we might know that we have on this day it's going to be a low power day, so we we can't do the sample analysis, but we can do some environmental studies. So you know the environment team. What, what do you guys want to do? I, I'm primarily on the engineering side, so I'm not necessarily involved. Deep deeply in all the science discussions. Generally, the way it works out for me is we're basically uh, on an operations day. Uh, we'll come in in the morning. We'll get all the images and data that came back from you know the end of our last drive, which may have come down overnight. And there's a separate science team, which is having another discussion, some handful of two people representing the, the different teams. And it's their job to like pick out the contact science target. So oftentimes when we stop somewhere, it's a lovely rock workspace in front of us. Um, and they basically need to figure out what rocks they want to look at more closely, what we might want to look at with our imager or X-ray spectrometer. So my interaction with the science team a lot of times is they'll come up and say like, now these three targets look really interesting to us. What do you think? And it's my job to say, well, we can't reach that one. That one's too rough to touch. But this third one, <laughs> no, that, that one is just right. So a lot of my job is either uh, making the scientists really happy because they can Reality touch their favorite target. <laughs> <laughs> or like, I'm sorry, but that one's just not going to <laughs> going to work for us today. Uh, but that, that can be really interesting too, since when we're in the mode of like a drive every day versus in between drill locations or something like that, it's the same thing where you get you get one chance to interrogate this rock workspace. And maybe there's something just like four inches out of reach that they'd really like to look at, but they probably aren't going to get the chance. So they've seen the ball of yarn sign. Yeah. <laughs> you know, next exit, but you've clocked that it's 10 kilometers off the next exit. So you have to be dad in the driving seat and just sort of 
talk down the science kids in the back yeah. seats who are, who are desperate to see that ball yeah, that, that sort of thing <laughs> yeah and that, that might be done a little bit strategically where like we know we might be coming up in this area so it's like oh there are really cool sandings over here and this really cool rock <laughs> cliff over here and it's like which one do we want <laughs> if you see the giant ball of yarn then you can't see the dinosaur themed calf <laughs> <laughs> right right and, and you you go through, through some of that and then my job might be we're getting instructions from someone called our, our science operation coordinator their job is basically to like make sure the engineering team is doing what the science team wants so very much the in-between between the, the two worlds my job is from the engineering perspective saying like hey yeah that sand dune is really cool but it's down this really rough gravel road that we can't you know with this vehicle is not capable of reaching oh it all sounds quite uh yeah. quite civilized and organized i'm sure if i was online in the, in the science meetings and i feel yeah. more civilized and organized they're, they're generally just you know two or three people uh, interfacing with the engineering team and and they look exhausted yeah yeah exactly <laughs> It's amazing the things that are currently being achieved in both of our spheres, but ever looking forward, universe is a tantalizing place with lots of interesting things to explore. What are the things that are really exciting you right now? And what's the sort of future technology that's going to allow us to do some new stuff? Uh, from the engineering side, you're seeing a lot of increase in autonomous systems and also uh, making things smaller and cheaper and more efficient. So from the autonomous side, like our our rover does have autonomous capabilities, both perseverance and uh, curiosity. We talked about that with the Autonav. Uh, but generally, they're just following some fixed set of instructions. And then there are a bunch of uh, reactive safety checks. So if something goes a little bit wrong, the rover will just stop what it's doing and and radio back to Earth and wait for new instructions. Uh, you're seeing a lot of research into more autonomous systems, so uh, robots that can actually survey an environment without necessarily getting feedback from Earth and just take a high-level science goal, find all the interesting rocks in this area, map out this region for us. And then by doing that, you're able to cover a lot more ground to get more science return and a lot less time because you don't have the, these constant feedback loops from Earth. Uh, you're seeing some proposals for like small rovers on the moon. A lot of people are looking at lunar technologies now because there's a big push to return to the moon. And instead of having this big billion dollar flagship class mission, which is what Perseverance and Curiosity are, what if we had two dozen of these small little rovers, a little bit bigger than, let's say, besides the little RC car or something like that, and they, all, they can all kind of rove around and independently explore, but also talk to each other and make kind of a network. And then what can you do with that sort of distributed sensing network compared to having one large rover on the ground? It's a different philosophy and you almost need to adjust how you're gathering the data and what sort of exactly. data you're, you're exactly. after. Yeah, and from the science side, it's very different since, like, instead of having this mass spectrometer that weighs, you know, 800 pounds on Mars, I'm going to have a dozen things. All they can do is tell the color of the rock or something like that. What useful information can you get from that? And a lot of times, lower fidelity data, but over a wide region and a lot of data points can be just as useful as having one a uh, very high value uh, lander. We are finding exactly the same philosophy with our work because it was technically very difficult. You'd have this single very high value asset and you would try and cram everything onto yeah. it and do the do the best you could but the arguments that we're bringing up is there's only so much you can do with that vehicle mm -hmm. and if yeah, it's it can only lost, be in one place at a time so. yeah and, and measuring sort of one set of things so mm -hmm. you do need to start with that single incredible asset these things aren't sort of rival groups i think you you have sure. to do yeah, they're, they're you do the single film for, first for sure. as much as these distributed systems are great mm -hmm. that comes after you've cracked it and then yeah. it's about miniaturization and, so and you can definitely pair them which i've seen done a bit in, in the ocean community and we're doing on mars now where maybe you have one smaller cheaper thing 
that is going along with the big expensive thing. And that's what you're seeing with the Ingenuity helicopter working with Perseverance right now. Ingenuity originally was a technology demonstration add-on mission, so it wasn't baseline as any part of the science mission of Perseverance. Now it's been working so well that they're actually sending the helicopter out in front of the rover to scout out terrain, <laughs> take pictures, you know, see what looks most interesting, analyze the traversability uh, of terrain for the rover. Now that small helicopter, which was you know this cheap add-on uh, device, is now becoming a very valuable portion of the mission from a science perspective as well. So I like that mentality too, where it's like we don't need to have only a $2 billion flagship or smaller swarm of super cheap objects. We can have them work together and really maximize the output of these missions. Are there any sort of core philosophies you find to this sort of extreme environment exploration. I, I know I sort of have a few that I, I keep coming back to. One of mine is we're working in, in incredible forces. And so to work with that rather than fighting it. And I haven't been able to fully embrace it, but I've been working on sort of pressure passive systems. So they just sort of ignore the pressure. But I'm really interested in potentially even using that pressure to achieve stuff, to, to mm -hmm. generate power or to fire mechanisms turning problems into solutions maybe because i'm working against so much energy and i'm like no energy is useful like i'm yeah. just not looking at this in the right context mm -hmm. yeah how, how do we harness those sorts of you know th things that we might normally think of as a huge problem to actually help achieve our missions if you will one thing that comes to mind you know you and i were talking uh, a little bit about offline but we've uh, been exploring some some different ideas at jpl and this is very much uh, in the realm of ideas and initial technology concepts not not something we're close flying. But how do we make devices or instruments or spacecraft that work within the, the environment they're going to? So, so one of the prevailing methodologies in spacecraft design is that you're basically taking a little bit of Earth with you so all your electronics can survive. You know, all of our electronics have a limited temperature range that they can survive within. Only so many thermal cycles you can go through. Pressure might be an important thing if you're going in, into a very dense atmosphere. It's exactly what we do. We make these enormous pressure housings and yeah. we take an atmosphere with us to the deep sea, mm -hmm. which feels like a lot of engineering. Taking for... a little bit of the surface of Earth down to the bottom of the ocean. <laughs> uh, yeah, with so weight one... and cost of mm -hmm. impact. Yeah, so one, one project I was involved in investigating, if you will, is something that we call the Automaton Rover for Extreme Environments. Uh, which is a great title. <laughs> I really, I really like that. Name. I'd read that book. Um, I'd read yeah, that. Yeah, I know. Right. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll let you know when it gets written. Uh, but we, we basically uh, proposed it and we're looking at using more mechanically oriented technology on the surface of Venus. So Venus is a, a really hard planetary body to explore because it's hellishly hot. So the surface of Venus, the, the pressure is something like uh, about 100 times the pressure of the, the atmosphere of Earth at sea level. Um, I think that's been like a kilometer un under the ocean. So it's relatively high pressure and also super high temperatures. So it's something like 465 degrees Celsius, I think. That's around 800 degrees Fahrenheit. So that's like, that's hot enough to melt lead. So all those solder joints, you know, in your electronics, they would just of melt. Of course. And your components would fall away. So we, we basically proposed, like, what if we could just get rid of the electronics? It sounds like a ridiculous thing to say at, at first uh, glance. But if you go back in history, you see a lot of people working on fully, you know, mechanical animatronic devices. There was a lot of research into mechanical computers in World War II to aim gun sights and that sort of thing. So like, what if we make an entirely clockwork mechanism that can basically take the place of our typical flight computers? You can't necessarily make things as small or as capable, but it allows you to get on the surface of Venus for a much longer period of time than you would with traditional electronics. So that's something that's definitely interested me is the sense of 
how do we get away from this traditional spacecraft design philosophy of bringing a little bit of Earth with us and kind of the traditional architecture of having you know, a single large brain, a big computer that's in charge of controlling all of these devices and mechanisms, to how do we actually build something that can operate within the environment we're sending it to? And uh, another thing that I've uh, found really compelling is the idea of distributed uh, systems. So instead of having one very large intelligent brain, what if you have distributed intelligence? So maybe every joint, every sensor has you know one simple rule that it follows. Uh, this could be called an emergent system as well. And you have all these simple rules and they're put together in such a way that you get a very intelligent behavior at the end. Yeah, you, you've built a slime mold. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Me and Heather were chatting about that on a, on a previous episode. Just how are these sponges making decisions about where they're moving? We can sometimes get sucked into a sort of creep in a certain direction. So, mm-hmm. you know, the, the processors get faster, the hard drives get bigger, the cameras get bigger resolution, but we're stuck mm-hmm. on a track. Yeah. And every now and then you've just got to get back to the original problem mm-hmm. and be ready to start on this entirely new path. And uh, that's exactly how, how this feels is you, you've mm-hmm. gone back to the problem yeah. <laughs> and yeah, bypassed like, no, don't put it in a bigger housing. Don't shield it more. Maybe mm-hmm. the answer is actually to totally rethink how we're doing this. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, it's going to make such a good graphic novel as well. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Steampunks on Venus. We have leaned into the steampunk uh, methodology of our, our <laughs> mechanical idea. It's a mechanical engineer's dream, by the way. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I bet, this, this I bet. Mechanically spacecraft. But yeah, you were talking about parallels with nature too, which is another area a lot of people are interested in. Uh, you know, nature has had thousands of years to perfect a lot of these, or well, <laughs> more than thousands, you know, mil- millions of years to perfect a lot of these, you know, what we might refer to as technologies, even something as simple as uh, mimicking how, how a bird flies or how different organisms fold themselves up and trying to incorporate those ideas into some of our designs. You can allow nature to have, well, basically absorbed a load of failures for you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's one way of putting it. I've not thought about it like that, but I, I like that idea. It's like these simple systems making complex decisions. I think a lot of people, maybe you look at evolution in the wrong way as almost a decision-making direction. And it is it is just a throwing everything at the wall and yeah. seeing what sticks. Yeah, and, and variation, <laughs> I believe, right? <laughs> yeah, and it's you can get a perfected design based on monstrous levels of death. <laughs> 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 Because everything else has been tried. Uh, yeah, we call that the uh, design, test, fail, repeat methodology <laughs> of engineering. The more the natural world can sort of absorb that for yeah. you. Yeah, you can jump in on like level 26 rather than level one. Yeah, and that's, that's a philosophy I try and take with, I guess, generally, you know, a lot of the, the engineering and the design that I do as well for hardware. You definitely need to do some analysis to verify, you know, your thing isn't going to fall apart. But oftentimes you can only analyze things so far. And at some point you have to build it and <laughs> subject it to the loads and environments it's actually going to see. And you're probably going to learn something important by doing that. Something you'd never even consider, you know, a compounding effect, this thing triggers this thing. and Mm-mm. You'd think that you guys would sort of be using the absolute sort of pinnacle technology, but is it <laughs> true that you guys tend to favor actually quite old processors with really, really known parameters? Is yeah. there an old Apple processor in one of the rovers right now? Yeah, we have a both a blessing and a curse called a heritage technology. The prevailing wisdom is that if it's flown in space before and it worked, we can fly it in space again. <laughs> that can lead to uh, this kind of troublesome loop where it's really hard to integrate and infuse new technologies into spacecraft the issue about processor. I believe the processor, the main computer for Curiosity was originally designed in the 1990s. There are all sorts of parallels you can make for how much more processing power your cell phone has than our Mars rover. 
And there are a couple different reasons for that. When it comes to processing, we're really worried about radiation damage when we're in deep space. Uh, you know, Mars doesn't have the same protective shell that Earth does. So in the 90s, there was a particular computer chip developed to be very radiation hardened. And NASA put a lot of time and money into developing that and to try and remake that technology and requalify it for space, but with you know, a lot more processing power is something that's very expensive and time consuming to do. So the easiest thing to do if you actually want to launch something into space, which is our goal, is to basically use the, the old technology. It leads to some really interesting side effects as well. One of my original jobs at JPL, I'm actually in the technology infusion group, which is a really cool title, I think. <laughs> you guys have such good titles. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. But yeah, part of my original job description was basically to try and identify new and upcoming technologies and actually get them infused into flight missions to try and get past what we call the technology valley of death. That's an actual term. But uh, basically what, what you see happening is there are a lot of people at JPL and elsewhere developing new technologies that show a lot of promise. They get up to a certain level of maturity, but then it's really hard to actually get them on the flight missions at that point because everybody just wants to use you know the same thing that's worked well in the past so part of my job is identifying what are the highest value new technologies and how do we actually get those on to flight missions and i understand both sides of it it's like we're never going to advance unless we embrace new stuff but the tried and tested and proven in such a harsh environment these parallels are fascinating because we come against the same stuff I'll notice a new piece of technology and I'll be just like, Alan, Alan, come on, look at this. This is, this is half the size and it's so much cheaper. And and he's like, but we know what we've got works. And if it's a flotation device or something that could implode, it's like, this is new tech. We know when a glass float looks like it needs to be retired. We, we're sort of part of that as well. Like we've got our eye in, we, we've had the bad experiences to know when something isn't looking right. But yeah, when we take on something new, there's a learning curve and there's a, there's a risk to that. Definitely. We'll retire some of that risk by trying to do like technology demonstrations in space as opposed to being part of the main science mission. And that's, uh, again, going back to the perseverance and the helicopter ingenuity example. Ingenuity is a technology demonstration. The whole intent of that was just to show that a helicopter can fly on Mars. And if that's the only thing it did, that would have been a success. But the, the whole idea of flying ingenuity is that by proving this technology out on a small scale on Mars... Uh, you're basically opening the door up to larger and more capable missions. Going back to a little bit of history, you saw that with the Mars rovers too, where the very first rover that we landed on Mars uh, was a little device called Sojourner. It was about the size of a microwave that landed in 1997 as part of the, the Mars Pathfinder mission. They didn't do a lot, you know, it just kind of drove around in, in the region of the lander, pumped some rocks and whatnot, did a little bit of science. And that was also a technology demonstration mission. That was just an add-on to the primary lander with the idea that if this works, it'll really pay the way for larger and more ambitious rovers. You know, we have a one-ton nuclear power, well, we have two, uh, you know, one-ton nuclear power rovers on Mars. That technology demonstration was very successful. And part of the idea with this helicopter is that by demonstrating this technology, we could, in a similar way, work our way towards larger and more capable flying vehicles on Mars as well, which would be really spectacular, I think. We're seeing the first generation of now proven technology, so we're going to see a lot more choppers in space. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) There's so much we can learn from each other. I think we're facing very similar problems. I think there's a lot in terms of management and in almost the personality of our communities, we could exchange quite a lot. And I'm really excited to see evidence that we are working together. There are projects that go hand in hand. So thank you so much for giving up some of your time and absolutely keep in touch. (laughs) Let us know how you're getting on. Is there a way both myself and listeners can hear what you're musing and what you're up to right now? 
Yeah, absolutely. So I actually run an internet newsletter based on uh, the modern day exploration of Earth and space. So a lot of this stuff we've been talking about, space exploration, deep sea exploration, you know, Arctic exploration, uh, you know, people getting out into the real world and, and sharing their stories. And that's something I am very passionate about and something that uh, I want to be able to share with other people. So if you're interested in that as well, uh, you can check it out at exploreandobserve.com. That's the name of the newsletter, Explore and Observe. And I'm also on Twitter uh, at Evan Hilgeman. So you can follow me there as well. I will put links to both of those in the show notes. So don't rush for a, a pen and paper right now. Scroll down and you'll see links to both of those. Thanks so much, Evan, for having a chat. I really enjoyed that. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. I think before we wrap up this first ever in-person Deep Sea podcast, we should give the listeners one more chance to hear how quiet this room is. Top quality sounds. Right. You ready? Yeah. Go. I can still hear the humming. I'm sure it's me. It is you, isn't it? Yeah. Maybe you have to step outside for a minute. Just to test Just it. take your worry outside. <laughs> I mean, it causes, <laughs> causes electrical interference as well. I get a buzz on the line. Yeah, that's it. It's that tight energy budget of yours that's squeezing your blood vessels and you can hear the blood running through your worry veins. If friend of the show, Professor Jeffrey Drazen, put me in his metabolic chamber, then I think my main energy expenditure is worry and anxiety. <laughs> Do you get a sensor for that, though? It's probably my Fitbit. It's probably like, oh, this this heart rate's up. What's he doing? No, no, heart, exercise. heart rate's too predictable. That's I want a worry sensor. So you want a dial that you can watch as you like, yeah. Tom, global warming. Deep sea mine is happening, Tom. Oh, the needles jiggle. Worry. <laughs> Greenland's just moved to Florida, or whatever the headline was. Yeah, that was it. <laughs> Greenland has poured onto Florida. <laughs> yeah. It's just been evaporated in one big cloud and then rained on Florida, and it's yeah. now two inches underwater. SpongeBob was there somewhere. Yes, yeah. But if SpongeBob wasn't there, it would be deeper because he's soaking it up. Yeah. Because <laughs> he, he's got quite a wide energy budget because right. he's a sponge. Think how deep the sea would be if the sponges hadn't soaked up so much. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So we should, we should hats off to the sponges for <laughs> soaking up all that heat. They're doing good work out there, those sponges. Yeah. And that concludes this episode of the Deep Sea Podcast. If you would like to get in touch with us, then our email is in the show notes. And we'll deep see you next time. And I abyss you already. Oh, Jesus. It's better when you're in the room. I can oh. see the disappointment. I can it's see how much you hate that. It's rubbish. I know. I think we should have a... It's uh, endearingly rubbish, though. I think we should do two things to stop you saying that. <laughs> One is to write a really strong letter to everyone's MP. Everyone should everyone's write a letter to their own MP. <laughs> you want to have me legally stopped? Yeah, if that doesn't work, I think we should take to the streets. So there's going to be a, a big anti-mask protest charging down the street, and then coming the other way is another protest just about my cheesy sign-off on the podcast. Yeah, Tom Lindley must be stopped. Stop Tom. He's not funny. Yeah, <laughs> he's not funny. He's not it funny. Was, <laughs> hashtag it wasn't funny the first time. <laughs> <laughs> it's only getting worse. Yeah, so yeah. we'll try the MP route first and see if they care enough to take it to Parliament. Like probably these. won't, so I reckon going to the streets is probably the answer. Hashtag it wasn't funny the first time. Bye. <laughs> Looking forward to that coming on our Twitter. Blast door failure imminent. Specimen 426 has entered the podcast studio. Oh, it's kind of cute, actually. <laughs>